this is the start of the story. I want to ask you if you have um, ever been at the end of your rope. Perhaps if you um, are a little older than me, I should ask you, when was the last time you found yourself at the end of your rope? I often comment on the fact that the older you get, naturally, the more you suffer. As a consequence, the wiser you become. So if I ask you to think about the last time you found yourself at the end of your rope, you probably find yourself thinking about a very unpleasant experience. I can remember a very unpleasant experience at DFW Airport in Dallas. I was coming back from a series of fruitless pitch meetings. And this was in a transitional season in my life with my wife and our kids. And so we were very short on funds. I've spent most of my life in startup mode, starting churches and starting a production company. And as those of you who have been through startup mode know, it's not exactly a time for riches. Right? It's a time to struggle and a time to scrape. And so I had not had time for breakfast that morning, rushing to the pitch meeting. Did the pitch meeting, jumped right in a taxi, took it to the airport, and then had no time to stop for lunch. And so rushed right to my gate, boarded the plane, transferred And I found myself walking through Dallas-Fort Worth Airport, literally so hungry I could hardly think straight. Now, you might be like me. You're someone who needs food. If I don't eat, you know, things get a little sketchy. I may not look like I have a fast metabolism, but I actually do. And so I was so weak with hunger, I could hardly walk. And I hesitate to confess this because, one, it's embarrassing. Two, I'm a preacher, so you'll think I'm exaggerating. But I actually went to a bank machine to withdraw some money to buy myself a sandwich, and I got rejected by the bank machine. That dreaded insufficient funds message. Now, some of you may have never experienced that, but for those of you who have, you know that this is one of the deepest, darkest, bleakest moments we Westerners can ever experience. It's like a slap in the face, right? It's just, I don't know, God forbid somebody should see, right? If there's people behind you in line, just the shame that comes on you in this moment, you're like, I am broke. I'm so broke, I can't even buy myself a sandwich at the airport. And so I had to walk to my gate, and wouldn't you know it, the gate was, I don't even know, 10, 12-minute walk away. And because I was so hungry, I hadn't eaten all day, and I was so downcast from this experience with the satanic ATM, that that walk felt like one of the longest walks of my life. If you had one of those walks, maybe it came after getting rejected for a job you hoped to get. Maybe it came after the end of a relationship that you'd been in for a very long time. You know those dark and despondent walks? Well, that was my walk through Dallas-Fort Worth Airport. I'll never forget that walk, one of the longest walks of my life. And I couldn't help but wonder, as I came to the text this week, if that's how Joseph felt. Take a look at Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. One of the most iconic passages in all the Bible. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. This census first took place when Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered, and she brought forth her firstborn son, And wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. 
And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. And when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. I've preached this passage probably more than any other passage in Scripture. As I came to it this week, I was surprised to be surprised. But of course, all those of you who know and love the Bible know that I should not have been surprised. I love that the greatest story ever told starts with such difficulty. I get to remind you this morning because of this that sometimes in life things just don't seem to go as planned. Have you ever experienced that? The best laid plans go awry. It seems to happen again and again. Things just don't seem to go as planned. This is exactly what's happening to Joseph. Look at verse 1. All the world, Caesar Augustus declared, should be taxed. I wonder if he walked out into his stables in Rome, looked at his collections of chariots and thought, We could really use some new rims. Maybe the spinners. I heard Cleopatra has some shiny new rims on her chariots. Tax them! It's the whim of one man, an all-powerful man. You know what, fellas? I think we should uh, raise a little money for the imperial coffers. Let's tax the world. And so the decree ripples out from Rome to all of the Roman Empire. Everybody needs to be taxed. And the way you were taxed in those days is that you were forced to leave wherever you happened to be living to return to your hometown. And there in your hometown, the town of your birth, you were both registered and you paid a tax. Tax them. Here's a question for you. Do you know anybody who loves paying taxes? Right? Some things are up for debate. That is not. I have never yet met a single person who loves paying taxes. Even organized, you know, highly um, lawfully oriented good people, even they don't celebrate too much when it comes time to pay your taxes. Why do many people, including myself, hate paying taxes? Because it reminds us that we have an overlord. It reminds us that someone else is in charge and has the power to tell us what to do. We know that this has been a tension for as long as there's been organized human society. Jesus himself spoke into some of the angst that his fellow Jews were experiencing in Jerusalem. Some of the Pharisees were trying to trap him one time. And they asked him if it's lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar. 
And of course, Jesus famously says, well, render unto Caesar those things that are Caesar's, and to God those things that are God's. That's Mark 12, 17. I think Jesus is there reminding us that truly we belong to God's kingdom, so we ought not to get our knickers in too much of a knot over the dues we have to pay to the world system. It's a very clever way of dealing with the question. Look at that coin. Caesar's face is on it. Give it to Caesar. But the things that belong to God, make sure you give those things to God. But I can't help but think that this tax year must have stuck in Joseph's craw a little more than most. Why is that, you ask? Look at verse 4. Therein lies the clue. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Hear this. Because he was of the house and lineage of David. The writer here is referring to King David. If you have less experience with the Bible than, say, someone like me, the invocation of the name of David might not do to you what it does to me. David was the greatest king in Jewish history. He's the archetypal king in the Jewish story. And so to invoke his name is to invoke power and might and strength and the glory days when the kingdom of Israel was the toast of the town. Last week, I actually read you through the lineage of Jesus, as recorded in the book of Matthew. And in that lineage, the writer records from Abraham through Isaac and Jacob and then down through the generations to King David and King Solomon invoking these great names of the Jewish dynasty. The lineage continues through the exile into Babylon and then the names become a little more obscure. But it's important for us to remember here this morning that though the name becomes obscure, the line was not. These were still the sons of David. These were still the descendants of kings living in exile in Babylon. And then the lineage continues down on through the years until we arrive at Matan, the grandfather of Joseph, and Jacob, the father of Joseph. And then finally, Joseph himself, who most biblical scholars believe was a home builder. We think he was a carpenter. Most scholars believe he was a craftsman. Most scholars believe he actually built houses. Next time you meet somebody who builds houses for a living, remind them that they're biblical and there's a very famous and wonderful man who plied their same trade. But he did so in Nazareth. And if you were to go to Nazareth today, I grew up in Israel, I've been to Nazareth many times, and I have mentioned from this pulpit how literally nondescript the city of Nazareth is. It's literally a podunk nowhere town that you don't want to go to. Like unless it happened to have the shrines associated with the early years of Jesus' life, you would never, ever go to Nazareth. And as such, when you do go to Nazareth today, it's absolutely congested with tourists. It's filthy and annoying. It's a city town in the hills, so there's no highway. So literally, from the second you get within seven minutes of the outskirts, it's just gridlock until you finally find somewhere to illegally park in and amidst the giant tour buses and fight your way uphill to the church. There's really nothing much to it. And in Jesus' time, most scholars believe that Nazareth was probably 150 people. Little podunk nowhere town. And this is where Joseph lives. And Joseph was supposed to have been king. For he was of the house and lineage of David. 
Imagine his thought process as he's heading south to Bethlehem with his family. Man, I'm supposed to be king. Now I have to trudge south for 10 days to pay taxes to this Roman emperor with my pregnant fiance. She was his betrothed wife. They weren't even married yet. So he's just taking care of her. I get to trudge south for 10 days. And the trek from Nazareth to Jerusalem on foot or with a donkey would have been incredibly difficult. I've traveled that route by car countless times. I've walked much of the hill country in both northern Israel and in Judea. And let me tell you, it is not the place for a Sunday stroll. I got to go south. I got to pay taxes. My wife-to-be is pregnant. And God help me if I have to deliver the Son of God on the side of the road. Right, We think it's a bad thing. Remember when your, your wife is pregnant, she's about to give birth, you're like, on pins and needles the whole time, praying to Jesus that you don't got to deliver that baby in the backseat of the car. I mean, Joseph is so broke, he didn't even have a back. It's like the backseat of the donkey. And he's from the house and line of David. He's supposed to have been king. The 12 days of Christmas were pretty lousy for Joseph. If I was a songwriter, I'd write my own version of that. On the first day of Christmas, my true love gave to me a donkey and a sack of wheat. Right? And they got a head south. He had a lousy 12 days of Christmas. Sometimes things don't go exactly as planned. Here's the first point for you today. If this has ever happened to you, things have not, you're not the first one, you're not the last one, you're not alone. This kind of is the human condition. You're not alone, so don't lose hope. Also, it's my pleasure to remind you this morning that God's going to show up. And in fact, not only is he going to show up, but he's going to meet you exactly where you are. Look at verses 6 through 14 of Luke chapter 2. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for Mary to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God. In the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. It's pretty powerful stuff. Every year I read Luke chapter 2 as we sit before opening presents, and every year it brings me to tears. I'm keeping a rein on my emotions here this morning because there's people in the front row and I don't want to spit. But I love this passage, it's powerful. I want you to notice the power in verse 6. And so it came to pass that while they were there, Did that jump out at you like it jumped out at me? While they were there. While they were there. I'm reminded that we're so often asking for God to move us along. Can you relate? Like, Lord, take me out of this season. Take me into the next one. Lord, take me out of this time of suffering. Take me into the time of plenty. Lord, take me out of the wilderness. Take me into the promised land. Lord, move me along. Friends, the Christmas story reminds us that wherever you are, Redemption starts here, wherever you are. And so it was that while they were there, 
wherever you find yourself today, know that redemption starts here. And it's a beautiful thing to talk about redemption. Why? Well, because redemption has this glorious habit of turning everything on its head. Look at verse 7. So it came to pass that she gave birth. And then in verse 7, she laid him. I'm going to read you the actual translation from the Greek. In a food trough because there was no room for them in the burlap enclosure. I thought it was an inn, you know, like you have images of an inn with candles in the windows. The king of the universe shows up in human history as a helpless baby, lying in a food trough in a cave, rank with the smell of smoke and animals. Let me tell you about Bethlehem. As a young boy, we used to head out into the shepherd's fields every Christmas Eve. You want to talk about an epic Christmas Eve service. People would come from all around the world to celebrate Christmas Eve with us at my parents' church. We would actually go out into Boaz's fields, the actual shepherd's fields, no church in sight, just nature and the stars above us, and he would sing Christmas carols a cappella by candlelight. That's Christmas Eve, let me tell you. And in every shepherd's field I've ever visited on the outskirts of Bethlehem, near the back of the field, which is a terraced field, so all the terraces descend, all the fields descend in terraces from around the hills of Bethlehem because Bethlehem is in the hill country. And so at the back of each of these terraces, there's the ground that they cut into to build the terrace. And almost invariably, in the back of the terrace where they've cut it away, you will find a cave. And as a shepherd, when it became night after grazing your fields in, your sheep in the fields, you would collect them, drive them, throwing rocks at them, hitting them with sticks, drive them into the cave, and they do this to this day. I was filming in one last year in Bethlehem. They pile rocks at the mouth of the cave to make a makeshift wall to keep the animals on the inside. And they let a fire outside, and the shepherds sit around the fire, and they keep the animals inside. And this is where the Christ child was born. Now let's talk about the inn. Oh, before I uh, move on, these caves stink. Why? Well, because men and animals have to, once in a while, take care of business. And I don't know if you've ever smelt sheep business, but it is the nastiest smelling business I ever smelt, and I've had four kids. (laughs) I have never been to a shepherd's cave that does not stink. I have never been to a shepherd's cave that actually still has the animals in it. So imagine how much more it would have stunk when the king of glory deigned to be born in such a place. And where are they going to lay him? They just lay him at the first available spot, the food trough. The king of glory. Oh, and the inn. The inn in those days during taxation time would have been literally a burlap enclosure. The families traveling together would have driven stakes into the ground. Then they would have tied like literally sheep's clothing around them to create a cloth wall. And then everybody would go inside and that's where they would sleep at night behind this kind of pretend protection from the animals and from the night. This was the kind of inn that said there's no room for you. We see here what C.S. Lewis testifies to in his immortal words when he says, God descends to reascend. He goes down to come up again and bring the ruined world up with him. It's beautiful in the Christmas story that we see God showing up in weakness 
We see, show, we see God showing up in unimpressiveness. You ever wonder why he chose to do it that way? You ever wonder why he didn't show up with trumpets and an army? This is one of the reasons that many of the people in his day did not embrace him as Messiah. Because they were expecting Messiah to return, rout the Romans, and restore the Jewish kingdom to the glory of its father David. And so right away when Jesus is born in a manger, in a cave surrounded by animals, he's immediately less impressive than popular culture needed him to be. And I'm here to tell you this morning that that's exactly how God wants it. You ever wonder why God came in humility? The answer lies in the same question applied to the Garden of Eden. You ever wondered why did God even give Adam and Eve a choice? Why give them a choice in the first place? Well, because he wanted them to choose. He wanted them to choose to obey him, to choose to love him, to choose to walk in his ways. And a choice is not a choice unless there's a choice. And a choice is not a choice if you are overawed and overwhelmed by the messianic king coming to earth with his retinue and his army of multitudes of angels. I mean, what would any person in their right mind do but bow the knee to one so great as he? And do you see how God would have stolen our choice if he showed up that way? Scripture teaches us that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But that's at the culmination of history. That's when the story is finished. That's when it's okay for God to stand in triumph and for his people to worship him. But in his incarnation, he comes in humility. He counter-programs our expectations so that we might choose him in humility, not because we're impressed. The question comes to you this morning, will you love him this Christmas even if he doesn't do what you'd expected? Because he's kind of fond of the unexpected. Look at verses 8 through 14. Now they were in the same country, shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. God shows up to shepherds. Very unexpected. Let me put it in today's language. Because God shows up to shepherds sounds like, you know, an archetype for us. We've heard the story many times. Even if you're not really a church person, you've heard the story of Christmas. You've heard the idea that some shepherds went and found him lying in this stable and some kings came. Like, people are familiar with the story to the point that we've lost the import of the story. So put in today's language, God shows up to a bunch of single parents earning minimum wage, working in a factory, living in a co-op, getting assistance from their local food bank. That's who God shows up to. Shepherds were the lowest of the low of Jewish society. Like they were lower even than, you know, the average, you know, poverty line living single family in the city of Guelph. 
They were truly marginalized, truly unimpressive in every way. Put it this way, you know where God shows up? He shows up on Willow Road. He shows up at Parkwood Gardens. He shows up at Royal City. He shows up at Hope House. Better yet, he shows up in the little storefront where the two homeless guys we saw yesterday were huddling from the cold. That's where he shows up. And he brings good news, which will be to all the people. This beautiful. Do you need good news today? I mean, I don't know exactly where you're at in your life. There's a very good chance that as you sit here this morning, you need good news. Maybe something bad happened to you this week. If that's you, I have good news for you. God loves you. And in Jesus, he's made you his daughter or son. You belong to God. God's family is your family. You're not alone. Nobody can ever do anything to hurt you anymore. You mean like literally, physically? Well, yes, you might get hurt in this life, but you have a home with Jesus. And someday when you die, you're going to awaken in his presence and you're going to be home forever. I have good news for you today. Maybe you've received that good news. Maybe you've been following Jesus a long time. I have this question for you this Christmas. Does your life look like it? Does my life look like it? Do we look like we've received good news? You can ask yourself this question this week as you go throughout your Christmas week. Does the good news look like good news in the way I live it? It's a big challenge. It's a challenge for me. I imagine the same is true for you. You see, if not, then you're missing the whole point. Of course, we ought to ask, what is the whole point? The whole point is verse 14. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Let me now read it to you with the interpretation from the original language into vernacular English. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace, delight towards all people. What's the point of Christmas? What's the point of the good news that we've been given in Jesus Christ? God the Son made flesh who actually entered into space-time history, lived among us fully God and fully man, was tempted in every way in which we'll ever be tempted, yet was without sin, fully, fully obeying and fulfilling the perfect will of God the Father. Jesus Christ, the God-man who suffered in ways in which we will never suffer. The culmination of which, of course, is when he was hung on the cross between two thieves to suffer and die in your place for your sin. You see, God who is holy cannot tolerate sin in any way, shape, or form. And each of us, following in the footsteps of our first father Adam and our first mother Eve, have been born with a sin nature. This simply means that no matter what we do, we screw everything up. Right? Is that just me or maybe that's you too? I keep trying, I keep trying, and I keep failing. Why? I've been born with a sin nature. I've been born as a rebel, as an outcast. I, who was intended to be God's friend forever, you, who were intended to be God's friend forever, have been born into separation from God. But God in his kindness did not allow the human race to persist in lostness and rebellion forever. But he sent his son, God the son, 
made flesh, to hang on that cross so that as he hung there, God the Father might place upon him the iniquities of us all. And how did that work? Well, because we're talking about God in a body, he's big enough to take the sins of the world. Your sin, my sin, the sin of every woman and every man who ever lived is laid upon him in that moment. The one who framed the universe, who's now incarnate, hanging on a cross between two thieves, suffering and dying in our place for our sin. And because he's fully man, the sin actually can stick to him. And he suffers and he dies. The Father turns his face away from him, causing Jesus to cry out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Or in the Hebrew, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. And he really dies, and he's really laid in a tomb, and there he lies for three days, but on the third day, come back at Easter. Better yet, come back next week. He rises again from death bodily, defeating its power in his body. Power of Satan, sin, death, and hell forever appears to his friends. He has an appetite, he eats, he walks through walls, it's very strange. And then right in front of their eyes, he ascends bodily to heaven. And the disciples are standing there going, this is very, very weird. And an angel shows up, because he knows they're not the sharpest tools in the shed, kind of like you and me, and says, look, the same Jesus who you just saw depart will return the same way. Right now, go and wait for the Holy Spirit. And so they do just that, they go and wait in a place called the upper room. It's one remaining wall, still exists in Jerusalem to this day. And while they're waiting, the Holy Spirit is poured out upon them. They pour out into the streets, and Peter preaches the first sermon of the church. And 3,000 men, along with their wives and children, come to faith that day, and the church is born. And from that first church in Jerusalem, the story of Jesus sweeps the world until here you are, 2,000 years later, hearing a preacher exult about Jesus, the Word of God made flesh, who has made all things new, starting with you. This whole story is about that glory to God in the highest. He gets his glory because he's saved us. And on earth, peace, delight towards all people. That's what I mean when I ask you the question, if your life looks like good news. Does your life look like it is filled with delight because of what God has done for you in Christ? The point of the gospel is God's glory and your joy. And here's how you know when you're beginning to live like it. You'll start living a come and see and go and tell kind of life. Look at verses 15 through 17. We're back with the shepherds. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. I love their response. The angels appear. I love that heaven can't help itself. It breaks into song. Glory to God in the highest. My favorite moment in Handel's Messiah. This guy is filled with angels lauding the God of heaven. Singing his praises over that little nowhere town in southern Judah. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. So they see this, and then the angels depart from them. And look at their response. Let us go to Bethlehem and see. Go and see. Copy the shepherds, baby. Live a life of faith this Christmas. Go and see. If you hear about God doing something, go and see. If you get the sense that God is about to do something, go and see participate in the life of God as it touches earth. Go and see this Christmas. 
And then in verse 16, look what happens. They go and see. I love that they go with haste. This reminds me that faith doesn't waste much time. It's usually in a bit of a hurry. And they go with haste and they see. And what do they find? They find it exactly as the angel said it would be. They find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. They're so amazed that they go and make widely known. Here's the go and tell part. They go and make widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. What did they say to everybody? They said, salvation is here. If they were living in our day and age, they might have said the following. They might have said, salvation is here. You don't got to keep feeling oppressed. If you feel oppressed this Christmas, I'm here to tell you that in Jesus, you can be free. You don't got to feel oppressed anymore. Salvation is here. You don't got to keep feeling like your life is the longest walk ever. Salvation is here. You don't got to keep letting the fact that things never seem to go as planned crush your soul. Right? We're not saying that all of a sudden things are going to start going exactly to plan. Things are still going to go wrong from time to time. You may enter seasons of life when things go wrong kind of all the time for a while. Even in that valley, when you are suffering because of Jesus, you do not need to let that suffering crush your soul. Why? Well, because we know from the story of Christmas that God is going to meet you right where you are. Even in the valley of the shadow of death, God is going to meet you right where you are. We also know from the story of Christmas that we don't have to rise to the occasion. Why? Because he has come down to our level. This is so beautiful. You don't have to be your best self with Jesus. You really don't. You don't got to be impressive in any way, shape, or form. He's more than impressive enough, and he has come down to your level. We also know from the story of Christmas that if you're poor, or maybe just poor in spirit, God's totally, unexpectedly awesome, life-changing good news is for you. And worship team, I'm done. This good news is for you. God's going to meet you right where you are. You don't have to rise to the occasion. He's come down to your level. If you're poor, poor in spirit, this good news is for you. You, my friends, are exactly what he had in mind with his Christmas miracle. Why? So that he would get his glory, glory to God in the highest, and so that you would get your joy. And on earth, peace, delight to all people. And why would God want to get his glory? Did any of you walk downtown in Guelph yesterday and see those trees covered in snow and the sun cutting through it? Did any of that beauty lift any of your eyes to heaven and cause you to laud the king of heaven? I'm betting yes. That's why God likes to be glorified. Because when God is glorified, it lifts the eyes of his creation to their creator. And they're reminded that he's alive. And it's not much of a hop, skip, and a jump from being reminded that God is alive to accepting the fact that, well, if he's alive, then it makes sense that he made everything. And if he made everything, that includes me. And if God is good, he probably made me to be loved, not to be destroyed. So there must be a way for this life of mine that's such a mess to be made right. And I'm here to testify to you that from there it's just a hop, skip, and a jump for someone to taste and see that the Lord is good and give their life to Jesus and begin walking in newness and faith. That's why God wants His glory, because He wants everyone to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus. 
Why does God want you to get your joy? Well, because He's kind. And He made you to be loved, not to be miserable. He made you to be filled with delight, not with sorrow. And He made you to be that way because He knows that there is nothing so irresistible as unrestrained joy. And so the more joyful His people can be, the more the people who His people know will be reminded that God is alive. Because why else would anybody be happy in this veil of tears unless they had hope that there was a life that lay beyond this one that was so glorious one could hardly speak of it. In fact, one must sing of it. Sing songs like, Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn King. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinner reconciled. Joyful all ye nations rise. Join the triumph of the skies. And later in that same song, Risen with man with man to dwell. Jesus our Emmanuel. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn King. That's why He wants His glory. So people will see Him and come to Him. That's why He wants you to have your joy. So people will see the fruit of His life in you and come to Him. So my friends, this Christmas, come and see that the Lord is good. And then go and tell everyone you can that love came down at Christmas and changed everything forever. And look, just start with you. You're all the proof the world needs. And as you see the fruit of this gospel literally changing your life, like Mary, take these things and treasure them. Hold them in your heart. And like the shepherds, go back to your everyday life, glorifying, in the words of verse 20, and praising God for all the things that you have heard and seen, knowing that because of Jesus, my friends, you're not at the end of your rope. It's Christmas. You're just at the start of the story.